You're listening to Tried and True, the Essay Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Zakshevsky. Recently, I had the pleasure to talk with Joanna Eleftheriou, who is both a contributing editor here at Essay, as well as an assistant professor of English at Christopher Newport University. She's also the author of a new essay collection called The Way Back. Joanna and her family moved to Cyprus from Queens, New York when she was 10. Cyprus was her father's birthplace, but a country completely foreign to her. Throughout her writing, she's constantly sifting through double identities, whether she's writing about Cypriot history, the political landscape of contemporary Greece, or exploring her journey as both an adherent to the Greek Orthodox religion and an out lesbian. Like all great essayists, Joanna doesn't seek to reconcile these identities so much as she conjures them up with enviable grace and clarity. I started off our conversation by asking her about the title of her book. So, uh, welcome, Joanna. Thank Um, you, Paul. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, actually. I I feel like you and I have all these points of connection, um, and we chat a lot by email, but we actually haven't had a chance to have an in-depth conversation, so this should be great. Um, I thought we could start by, um, I wanted to ask you about the title of your book, uh, This Way Back. Why why that title? Well, I was short on time to deliver my manuscript for a dissertation fellowship, and I was in a rush, and I asked myself for a provisional title. And this road sign in the southern part of Cyprus, where I spent a lot of my youth, teenage years, and my 20s, that looked like a road sign, a regular stop sign, a one-way sign, like we have pretty much all over the world in gray and black. But when a friend had asked me, oh, that said way back in English and in Greek, for the Greek speakers in the audience, Boria Epanastrophis. And a friend of mine, actually, I never paid attention to it, but a British friend of mine asked me, way back where? And I figured, well, it's pointing north. Um, The context for everything in Cyprus, which is a divided island and remains divided politically, um, is always the invasion of 1974. And I was like, oh, well, it probably is, it's pointing north um, to the part that's occupied by Turkish military forces still. And it, it must be pointing to, it must be saying that, that the way back for the refugees who are still waiting to go back um, uh, to their homes, um, that's the way. One reason that it made sense was also that the word boria means a way, but also means like a political march. And I thought that that would be a good title for the book because it picked up on the problem of going back, uh, which was at the heart of the question to go back to the ancestral homeland. Um, and then also the the politics of Cyprus is integral to the book as well. <laughs> and then I asked a friend of mine who lives in the area to find a picture of it once I really started to like the title. And she's like, I'm sorry, but it's just a sign. It just means that if you take that little side street that I hadn't even noticed, 
you can get back to the center of the city. And I didn't see why there would be such a ambiguous and vague sign. She thought that it's a realist, a, re, a reasonable sign to have. Um, but I also said, well, that makes it an even better sign to have, uh, makes it an even better title because it captures my misunderstanding actually captures what it means to live in a second language and to make those kind of little mistakes because of a misunderstanding of a political geographic, even sort of like um, uh, infrastructure kind of context. And I kept it. That's great. That feels very essayistic too. How so? I, um, going out on a limb here, just, well, so much of essays are about um, what you make of something. I was wondering, and also um, an embrace of error, right? Because a way in which we try and articulate the difference between an essay and papers that argue is that we don't resolve contradictions in the essays. So it meant the wrong thing. The, my, I made a mistake and I kept the mistake. I hadn't thought about it exactly that way before. And then, and, and then I think that over time I realized also that it has a spiritual um, and metaphysical dimension. Um, the idea of going back to a time before distraction, before, um, I think there's a lot of religions that imagine the spiritual journey as one that returns us to a time before ego, before whatever disconnected us from what really matters, whether that's God or ourselves. The heart may be the sweetest homeland, and Greece, as Rasulis writes, may have taught generations of emigrants to breathe and to die no matter what land they find themselves on. But even as I spend winter after winter in America, the cypress of carob, terebinth, and cyclamen pulls me. I feel that I know who I am through this yearning, for the churning of seas, the light of the sun, the slope of a rock, the lift of a wave. I love to run in the heat of an American day and watch sunlight sparkle on water that makes me ache even harder for Cyprus, where I cannot stay. While I run, sweat runs down my face as it does when I run in the sun-parched hills close to my home. I love to smell ocean. Even in America, I always find water to run beside, to smell the salt and the dying fish as I remember mountains sloping into the sea. I live the new Greek poetry and the old, old stories. I live my myth and my story as I run by the shore of an Atlantic inlet that smells to me like the wide Mediterranean Sea. In the book here, you, you describe how you grew up in New York City till you were 10, and then your, you and your family go back to, to Cyprus, where you, where you finished growing up, right, till college. And you write here, arriving home to a place I had never seen, as if my father's home had lurked in some inherited recess of my imagination. So talk to me a bit about this idea of returning to a home in a place um, that you actually never 
lived in, but that you feel kind of drawn towards um, spiritually, artistically? Yeah, I think this is something that particularly Greeks growing up in America, we call it the diaspora. Um, although I realized recently that for people who aren't Greek, when they hear diaspora, they actually think specifically of Jewish people. And and then even more recently about the African diaspora. But for Greeks, diaspora is just Greeks, Greeks who are live outside of Greece. And we, I went to a parochial school, which means that the church and the school were connected. It was tuition based, but it was very affordable because the motivation wasn't like some private schools. The motivation is like to hang out with other rich people. It was to make sure we were hanging out with other Greek and Orthodox people. Again, very similar to Jewish people, religion, and and per- perhaps Catholics as well. For Greek people, our religion, religion, culture, and ethnicity are very much combined. So I grew up with the idea that I don't come from America. I come from Greece. I didn't know the difference between Greece and Cyprus when I was a little kid, but I felt that I was told very much that that was my homeland. And so I was very much prepared to feel at home in Cyprus. And um, when I asked a friend of mine who remembers me departing and sending back letters. She also remembers that I was expecting to feel like I was returning somewhere, um, like it was some sort of mistake that my parents gave birth to me in the United States. I I guess just jumping on that idea a little bit, you also write, I was born with nostalgia in my blood. Um, which is a, I think it's in the same essay and, and they're kind of related ideas. And I could relate to that a lot uh, in, in my own story. Can you talk a bit about the power of nostalgia and, um, you know, both in your life and how you use it in the book? I started out thinking of it as just a beautiful thing, just a kind of beautiful sadness because I was raised with a father who sort of luxuriated in the beautiful, wistful longing for the place where he came from and a place where he belonged. And most of the Greeks I know in the U.S. sing very beautifully about a time before. Um, And so I started out actually writing from that place of idealizing a homeland, a place where we used to belong. And then it extends to a time period where um, relationships were simpler, industrialization and post-industrialization had not somehow corrupted or alienated us from the earth, from each other. When I began to study how nations work and what was actually driving my own emotion, um, I learned what might be obvious to a lot of listeners that ethnic nostalgia is a very powerful but also dangerous driver of um 
emotion force. I mean, it's almost ironic. We're taping this in the week after um, the American election, 2020 election, and the force of nostalgia for the time that the losing side wanted to bring back is scary. And so I came also to think a little more critically, although I think it's my obligation to continue to prep, to press myself, to question my own nostalgia and ask why I enjoy imagining a past that was better than what I'm living uh, presently. I don't know if that answered your question. It does. It does. It's it's great. And I mean, for, for me, obviously, a, and I think you allude to this in your book, I mean, part of nostalgia also is that it's to a a past that never really was, and you're losing the illusion to the election is perfect. <laughs> um, but I, I grew up on books that imagined a past, also, right? And I talk a lot in the book about how it's kind of hard to be an English professor, a person with three degrees in English, who's utterly in love with modern Greek literature. Um, fortunately, I've found a lot of connections recently through modern Greek studies and stuff, but my favorite novel is a novel about nostalgia for a time when there was an enormous Greek-speaking, Orthodox Christian-practicing minority in what Greeks still call Asia Minor and sort of won't quite concede to recognizing as Turkey. Um, or politically, you know, it depends where you stand politically or idealize a time when in Turkey, we had um, Turkish speaking, Muslim practicing and Greek speaking, um, Orthodox Christian practicing people living in harmony. So there's an idealizing of a time that when when the Ottoman Empire um, had not yet fallen apart. And you have Greeks and Turks, which are so symbolic of opposites living in harmony. One of the things I was thinking a lot about when I was reading your your book, um, of course, is this whole idea that we already talked about of of home. And um, of course, there's a huge tradition in the essay. Uh, um, this idea of home is a major trope in the tradition of the essay. Um, you know, and immediately I think of writers like you know, James Baldwin or Joan Didion or Scott Russell Sanders, or, you know, you and I could come up with dozens. Do you see yourself writing in that tradition? Do you see your collection is, is kind of in some way, have, was that something you had thought about at all? Yes, I was required to for my MFA thesis. We were required to, with great hubris, um, place ourselves in a tradition, and I had no choice but to do just that. Um, and I teach all three essays that you mentioned for precisely the reason that you mentioned, because they speak to me. And again, I think it would be hubris to say that I see myself, but if someone like your esteemed self were to place me in that tradition, I would be nothing but overwhelmed with honor. Is it just modesty, or do I detect any um, like slight um, sarcasm? Isn't the right word, but the sense that somehow that that this whole idea of I don't know, talk to me like something. You're a very perceptive <laughs> interviewer. Um, 
I'm serious about the hubris thing. Uh, I think that I would sort of jinx it or that I, I don't think it's the author's. I think that's what, that's what readers are for, you know, like, so I just don't think it's either that or it's my womanly refusal to assert (laughs) myself. But, um, so yeah, I don't know why I refuse to answer that question. It's also really too good to be true, but also, yeah, I think that's what I would go back to my, uh, claim that that's what readers are for. I don't think it's the writer's job. I think I think of writing and like very much essays, but all literature really is a communication. I'm very invested in moving away from the idea of the solitary artist, the sort of romanticism, you know, early 1800s cult of the lonely artist. I think it's really been damaging for me. I think if I hadn't had this cult of the isolated genius communicating with the spiritual world. I might've published my first book much earlier. Um, So I, yeah. So I guess the answer to that is I'm very invested in a community and in the different roles that we have. And I'm extremely grateful that Essay is playing the role that it does in the community and that you're asking me these really deep questions. And so, yeah, that's my, that's my answer. Um, Community. Community. One of the one of the things I kind of took away from your collection, um, and I think you and I have, and I'm going to get to this a little later in the interview, but have probably read a lot of the same writers, given um, some of our um, shared background with the essay. And um, you know, I think of uh, your your essays really falling more on the continuum of your thinking um, and your reflections on the outside world, rather than a lot of um, kind of in uh, too much inner retrospection or inner uh, inspection. Does that make sense? I'm way out on a limb here. So, oh yeah, and I uh, was urged to write more. I think we're talking about the difference between memoir and essay. I disagree firmly with people who don't think there's a difference. I think that we can capture the difference pretty succinctly in that the memoir looks at the family, which I do but looks at how the person herself was formed with a salience given to the internal world, as you described, but at every step of the way, what I'm doing, not what I'm trying to do, because we don't really try to do things as writers. We get whatever we can down on paper and then recognize afterwards what we've done after we sort of come to from the difficult air space uh, or state of whatever writing is. But what I do um, is to use my personal experiences as vehicles for discovering truths that are not sufficiently understood in the world about the world, right? So what we were talking about earlier about our relationship with the body embodiment and the earth and the land and our sense of home. I didn't have any other way to understand how I relate to the earth, how I relate to my dead ancestors, how I relate to different countries and the way I imagine those countries other than to write that essay. And through that, and not my personal relationship, but a truth about sort of human nature, 
and existence. So that's exactly what I want to do. Um, Robert, uh, not Robert, Richard Rodriguez, the once in the 80s controversial figure. I think people have forgotten how controversial he was now, and he's just really much anthologized. I wrote an article about his book, Hunger of Memory, investigating whether it's a memoir or an essay collection for the purpose of understanding whether I wanted to write a memoir or an essay collection. Uh, Richard Rodriguez complains somewhere that he was told to include more grandma and (laughs) more grandma is a really succinct way of articulating the nudge that a lot of publishing companies and perhaps a lot of readers, um, push, use, push um, writers to tell more stories and prioritize the what happened or the narrative. I don't prioritize what happened. I prioritize what I can discover using as mirror, you could even say fodder, right? The what happened to me doesn't matter as much as what I'm able to discover using um, my experiences as a mirror vehicle. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I want to ask you about um, a different essay in the collection. Um, you're using the the kind of the biography of the life story of the Greek actress and activist, um, Melina Mercori. Did, did I say her name correctly? Okay. Very well. Um, and you use it as a kind of trellis or spine against which you kind of locate your own biography. Um so can you tell us more about who she was and uh, and then how she inspired you to figure out um, parts of your younger self? Yes. Um, Melina Mercuri is, was, uh, is an, a major figure in Greek culture. She was born a couple years after my own grandmother. So of that the generation of my own grandmother. She started life as an actress fairly young. She was a in her young early 20s. She became an actress and became quite successful. Finally became a Hollywood star in because her famous film Never on Sunday uh, was um, made an Oscar, got an Oscar. So she had an international career as a movie star at first. And then she refused to be quiet when the fascists took over Greece in 1967. And she employed her fame in the service of restoring democracy to Greece. She urged the resistance to the dictatorship of the colonels, which lasted the junta, junta, which lasted from 1967 to 1974. She said, I am a whore of international radiance. Use me. That's because her famous role in Never on Sunday is of the happy whore. It's a very complex and interesting film. Um, I, As I dramatize in the essay, I didn't find out about her until she was on her deathbed. And I was 15 years old and she was in her early 70s. And she struck in me some kind of awakening and she remained very vivid in my consciousness. And when I was taking again Yulia's class, we were asked to write a portrait essay. And she's the one who came to mind whose biography I wanted to write. And as I started to write her biography, I recognized why 
she had so much importance for me because she proved that one doesn't have to make art that's apolitical. One doesn't have to choose between art, the uh, the life of kind of the aesthetic life and the utilitarian uh, function, possibilities of art. And then later, actually, when I put the essay into the book, I actually recognized that since I was organizing the essays chronologically, which is very different from the order in which I wrote them, because the position of this essay chronologically is as my teenage years and is the first essay in which it makes sense for there to be any sort of foreshadowing or, or suggestion of my eventual realization of my lesbian sexuality, it would be the time where I introduce that idea to the reader. And I got this wonderful opportunity to weave in what I was also discovering about um, the fathers of the church and what the fathers of the church, meaning I include the sixth century theologian and what he has to say about beauty, because I was really reading theology while I was having a sexual awakening as well. And thus I'm able through this essay to insist for the reader that we don't separate body and spirit. We don't separate gayness and orthodoxy, which was a major accomplishment, I think, that I realized I had accomplished after I wrote, I finished the book. I wonder at my students who speak with ease about their desire. I have benefited from other people's willingness to be frank. Frankness is highly valued in America. I am not entirely American. On matters of desire, I speak sideways. Words are bigger than I am. I am small. Words are dangerous. To secrets, there's a sweetness. The beauty of women. Beauty begets reverence. Why speak a sweet center? Silence. Outside it, terror. I'm glad you said that because I was actually going to ask you, you know, I mean, I feel like that struggle is what you, is is in the one of the most moving pieces in the collection of the essay out. Um, and I love the essay. It's, it's beautiful. And um, I could just hear echoes of so many other friends kind of difficult journeys to to come out and um and there is the conflict that you're talking about can can you talk a bit more about that so i as i say in the essay and uh, the, the essay out comes in two parts one i wrote was actually asked for my coming out story in 2013 and the other part is one of the latest things I composed as like a missing puzzle piece for the book. I realized I needed to tell my coming out story and it doesn't exist. It's one of the only pieces that doesn't exist as its own essay on my computer. I recently looked it up to see when I wrote it and it was the first appearance of it is actually in the document named submission to West Virginia University Press. So it was the last puzzle piece that I put in. I fell in love with God first, 
I knew a sense of transcendence and connection to the entire universe and to myself through my Orthodox faith. The Orthodox uh, faith and tradition is really old and really beautiful and very much involves the senses and um, extremely deep and intellectual texts. And when I discovered later and significantly later that my love of women and my ability to engage romantically exclusively with women was in conflict with that, it didn't really make sense to to give up what I knew already was deeply meaningful in my life for a theoret for a, some kind of hypothetical happiness. It just didn't make sense when people were like, oh, you know, I was told multiple times by all sorts of different people to become a Unitarian. <laughs> which, which of course you spent so much time with in your youth, right? And I didn't understand how people could think of like brands of Christianity as interchangeable. Um, and I was actually able to find um, my uh, folklore professor, Dr. Elaine Lawless, was the first person who seemed to understand why I couldn't just swap out Orthodox Christianity with some other flavor of Christianity, even though she herself was not a practicing Christian at all, but had studied and done ethnographies, multiple ethnographies of Christian women. And so she was able to understand the depth of the importance of my particular faith community and faith tradition and urged me to look for a way to live in both at once. And uh, Scott Cairns, the poet and my advisor in Missouri also, um, he's written many books about uh, monast Orthodox monasticism. And so he seemed like an authority to me and he insisted also that I could be my whole self and also within the church. So I, I don't know anybody else. We're a really rare breed of people who s insist on our presence and kind of won't leave. And if my, if the Orthodox church wants to kick me out, I guess they can kick me out, but I'm not going on my own. I love the way you kind of insist on all your complexities. Thanks. It wasn't easy, period. Speaking of, of the title of your book, uh, the, the, This Way Back, you and I share an, an alma mater, Cornell. I also think it's safe to say that um, you and I were both very inspired by a particular teacher or instructor there, um, Lydia Facandini. So for those people outside the Cornell community, um, she's probably best remembered as the um, editor of, of the 1991 anthology, The Art of the Essay. I'm wondering if I can ask you to tell me a bit about what she meant to you and how her work on the essay, how did, what did that mean to you? Lydia Facandini means everything to me. I committed myself to being her disciple um, on an August day in the year 2000. And I can almost not bear how magnificent a privilege, a joy, an honor, and a blessing it is to answer this question, Paul, to you, because you are one of the only people I know 
who recognizes what a genius teacher and writer and um, and scholar Lydia Facandini is. So for um, there'll be obviously most listeners who who won't know what, and we may as well be speaking okay. um, literally Greek. But um, first of all, maybe just describe her and what it was about her character that um, either either thrilled or terrified students in equal measure, I might say. Paul refused to tell me what he was going to ask me. And I, for some reason, even though the first thing I think of when I think about Paul is our mutual admiration for Lydia Facandini, it did not occur to me that he would ask me to describe my teacher. Yes, she, well, I, I just read my Students, I asked my student, my own students, my own nonfiction students to write a what are you in for letter to my next semester's class. And they said, Dr. E does not sugarcoat her um, comments and she will tell you to her fa- to your face that you need to do better. I am wondering what other options other professors have found other than to tell a student to their face. However, I guess in that sense, I am an, a disciple of um, Lydia Facandini's. She told students that they needed to do better. She told us that we were capable of really strong and insightful writing when I turned in my journal, which was a collection of several 200 word pieces after, well, not after I turned it, after she graded it, she came down from her office, I think on the, what was it? Second or third floor of Goldwyn Smith Hall at Cornell. She came down to find me where I was running the register at the Temple of Zeus coffee shop. And she stares at me and I thought I was kind of like in trouble at first. And she's like, she stares at me and she's like, this is the best undergraduate work I have received in 35 years of teaching. But again, it was sort of like annoyed. Like, why did it take 35 years for someone to do good work like this? Like, this is what I've been expecting. And she's sort of half annoyed that it took 35 years for Joanna Lefthariu to come up and finally do the assignment up to her standard. I don't know if she did this to you, but she um, she asked us what we thought our grade should be, and I gave myself a, a B plus, and she said, "Yes, that's that is basically the grade I, grade I was going to give you." And for the next thirty five years, I've basically thought of myself as a B plus, and it and I totally I can own that, and it's. But it 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 was less like a little grade and more kind of like a like yes it was a communion and it was it felt you know honest. Um, let's close out. Just you, you know talk a bit about um, how she transmitted the tradition of the essay. Olivia Facandini put together an anthology that includes Montaigne and the most important essayists of the American and British traditions and she has an enormous section about the tradition of the essay from Montaigne to the present and um, she taught me what the essay is sort of single-handedly and everything that I've read throughout my MFA and PhD years is definitely in uh, tandem with 
her guidance and her really profound understanding of the essay. And I'm sorry, she told you you were. (laughs) (laughs) She, I didn't believe in myself, but she was irritated with also the rest of the class because I was writing very similar to what I'm writing now, only not as well, um, obviously. And so she was annoyed. She was annoyed that the rest of the class didn't take my writing as seriously as she did. But she saw in me a little European because uh, Lydia was from Hungary. And so she kind of took me, I think I reflected herself to her more than you could reflect herself back. So she was this fiercely independent and also ha- uh, mind. She had great conviction in her own understanding of the world. And perhaps that inspired me. Like, I want to be like that, but I didn't think I could. Um, but she was definitely of all of the people I had met up until probably grad school, I met other minds like that. Um, Lydia's mind was the one I wanted to match. I um, mean, after that, um, I took another class and the professor told me to withdraw because I was writing so essayistically that he was just like, you should drop this criticism class and just go write essays. <laughs> That's like the best compliment I could imagine ever getting. It was, it gets better actually. He wrote, he wrote, um, because I had to withdraw from the class. He was like, you just need to write essays. You don't need to be in this class. And so he asked me to withdraw and I chat and he wrote like an, like a kind of dispensation for me to still graduate, like with honors or something with distinction at, from Cornell. And it said her, her, she has a monumental block in the genre of literary criticism. And this should not mar, I was like that, the word mar, mar her distinguished record at Cornell. I um, know that you and I will continue talking about Lydia, but this feels like a good place to um, to finish up. And I just, um, congratulations again on the collection. And it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Paul, for these wonderful and really profound questions you gave me the opportunity to answer. You've been listening to Tried and True. We're a co-production from the Assay Journal of Nonfiction Studies and the Missouri Audio Project. Assay Journal aims to bring new and underrepresented voices from the Academy and beyond. To find out more about us, visit assayjournal.com or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. See you next time. AP Production, based in Columbia, Missouri, supported by KBIA.